Good morning. I'm Claudia Shamba, your host, welcoming you to the August 6th, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, the guest in my first segment will be Jack Cheevers, the Public Information Officer of Region 9 of the U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to talk about, ready, enrollment in Medicare. In the second segment, I'm going to have on George Shea, playwright, children's author, and environmental activist to talk about his wonderful play and the message it's conveying, Dr. Keeling's Curve. Welcome back to the show. My guest in this segment is Jack Cheevers, the Public Information Officer for Region 9 of the U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Region 9 is based in San Francisco and includes California, Arizona, Hawaii, Nevada, and the Pacific Territories, where he's been since 2005. He completed his Bachelor's of Arts in Political Science at UC Berkeley. He's a 27-year veteran as a newspaper reporter and editor in California, including seven years with the Los Angeles Times. He's also the author of a book entitled Act of War, Lyndon Johnson, North Korea, and the Capture of the Spy Ship Pueblo. Jack is here today to talk about enrollment in the Medicare system, step-taking that takes careful planning and attention, which I have come to appreciate from many peers' experiences. Jack comes to us today from Oakland, returning to Ask a Leader. He was here a year ago. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Jack Cheevers. Thanks a lot, Claudia. So honoring an elder demographic and its needs, this is my long-format public service announcement for Medicare. So Jack, why don't you start by explaining how people can enroll in Medicare when they become eligible? Well, most people become eligible for Medicare when they turn 65. And uh, there are only certain times when you can enroll in Medicare. And some people may get their Medicare automatically, and others need to apply for it. And the first time you can enroll is known as your initial enrollment period. Well, then when does the initial enrollment period start, and how long does it last? The initial enrollment period is a window, and it lasts for seven months. And the window begins three months before the month that you turn 65. It includes the month you turn 65, and it ends three months after the month you turn 65. And this window is particularly important because if you miss it, you may uh, have to pay a penalty for late enrollment, and that may uh, leave you with a gap in your Medicare coverage. Well, in terms of the penalty, what's the sort of ballpark for that? Uh, Well, it depends on um, how late you are, actually, but your premium can go up for um, about, it goes up 10% for every full 12-month period uh, that you delay signing up after you first become eligible. Okay, so that it could be a significant change in the, that, but it's just so people have a sort of a ballpark and appreciate that. So you mentioned that some people are enrolled in Medicare automatically. Who are they? Well, I, I just want to emphasize that uh, most people, and that's the vast majority of people, uh, have to sign up for Medicare on their own. Okay. Um, there are some exceptions, however, if you already get benefits from Social Security or something known as the Railroad Retirement Board, 
uh, you will automatically get Medicare Part A and Part B on the day that you turn 65. If you're uh, under 65 and disabled, you will automatically get Part A and Part B after you've been receiving disability from Social Security uh, or from the Railroad Board for 24 months. If you're automatically enrolled, that means you get your red, white, and blue uh, Medicare card in the mail three months before your 65th birthday or in the 25th month of your disability. Uh, But if you don't get Medicare automatically, you need to apply for it. And again, most people have to apply for it. Can you apply online? Yes, absolutely. You can uh, apply online by going to the Social Security website, and that's at ssa.gov, ssa.gov. And uh, signing up for Medicare takes less than 10 or 15 minutes in most cases. Uh, Once your application is submitted electronically, you're done. And there are no forms to sign up, and usually no documentation is required. Uh, Social Security processes your application and contacts you if they need more information. Uh, Otherwise, you get your Medicare card in the mail. Also, you can go to your local Social Security office to sign up, or you can call Social Security at 1-800-772-1213. So why is the Medicare card important, Jack? Well, it shows your health care providers that you're actually enrolled in Medicare, and you want to be sure to carry your card with you whenever you're away from home because you never know when an emergency is going to strike. And uh, then if you need services, you can uh, pull out your card and show it to your doctor, the hospital, or any other health care provider that you need services from. Social Security numbers were recently removed from Medicare cards to help prevent uh, identity theft, which is a rising problem for seniors in this day and age, unfortunately. Right. Uh, and now the Medicare card has an identifier. It's made up of letters and numbers um, that's u- unique to you. And I just want to urge people not to give your Medicare number to anybody except your doctor, your pharmacist, your insurance company, or anyone else you trust uh, who works with Medicare on your behalf. Um, If you forget your card, uh, your doctor can look up your Medicare number online. You can't. So I'm wondering if, like, you know, with our important documents, do we, we should keep a photocopy of the card, but carry the card with us wherever we go? Yes, because the reason for that is, you know, you're talking about a medical care. And, you know, if you get in some sort of a car accident or some other emergency when you're outside of your house, um, you're going to need that card. You need the red, white, and blue. Not a, So that you have the original with you, and the copy is in your personal records at home. Right. Yeah, that's actually a good way of doing it. Okay. Oh, good. Well, now let's talk about Medicare, how it works, and what it covers. The, there's four different parts. Is that correct? Right. That's exactly right. Um, the different parts of Medicare cover different services. So Medicare Part A is hospital insurance, and it covers... Uh, things like inpatient hospital stays, care in skilled nursing, uh, hospice care, and some home health care. Uh, Medicare Part B is medical insurance, and it covers certain doctor services, outpatient care, durable medical supplies like wheelchairs and walkers, and um, a, a wide range of preventive health services. Uh, Part C, uh, which is also known as Medicare Advantage, is a type of managed health care, and Part D provides coverage for prescription drugs. If you just joined us, my guest 
is Jack Cheevers, the Public Information Officer for Region 9 of the U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, talking about the basics, actually the intricacies and the basics of Medicare enrollment. So what does Medicare not cover? Well, it, yeah, Medicare certainly doesn't cover everything. Um, if you need services that Medicare does not cover, you're going to have to pay for them yourself uh, unless you have other insurance. Um, let me run you through some of okay. the items that Medicare doesn't cover. Um, those include long-term care, such as uh, care in a nursing home, routine dental care, dentures, cosmetic surgery, acupuncture, and hearing aids. Okay, and as I understand it, uh, there's different ways to get your Medicare, right? Yes, there are two ways that you can get it, uh, and they're known as Original Medicare and Medicare Advantage. Original Medicare is parts A and B, and with Original Medicare, you get to choose any doctor or hospital that accepts Medicare payment anywhere in the country. One of the main things to keep in mind about Original Medicare is that it does not cover drugs, but you can get drug coverage by buying a Part D drug plan. Okay, and what's the second way to get Medicare, Jack? The other way is called Medicare Advantage, which is also known as Medicare Part C. Medicare Advantage plans are sort of uh, all-in-one alternatives to original Medicare. They bundle together your Part A, your Part B, and usually Part D drug coverage. Uh, Medicare Advantage plans are sold by private insurance companies approved by Medicare, and with most plans, you need to stay in their network. Uh, in other words, you would need to use their, the plans, doctors, hospitals, and other providers, or you're going to wind up paying part or all of your costs. And about roughly a third of all people with Medicare now have Medicare Advantage. Uh, if you go to our website, Medicare.gov, uh, you'll see an interactive tool that helps you decide between Regional Medicare and Medicare Advantage. You just need to answer a few simple questions to get started. Okay. Well, Jack, are there any other big differences between Original Medicare and Medicare Advantage? Yes, I mentioned earlier that uh, Original Medicare does not cover drugs, so people who choose that option often buy Part D prescription drug plan. Um, original Medicare also has copays and deductibles, and many people supplement it with what's known as a Medigap policy. Medigap may cover you when you travel abroad, but Original Medicare generally does not do that and not many Medicare Advantage plans cover international travel either, so that's something to keep in mind as, as the summer travel season um, unfolds. Original Medicare uh, usually doesn't cover vision, hearing, or dental, but many Medicare Advantage plans do cover those areas, and they offer other benefits that Original Medicare doesn't have, uh, for instance, gym memberships. Okay. What about costs, Jack? Talk about the major cost differences between Original Medicare and Medicare Advantage? Well, let's take a look at uh, Original Medicare first. That's Parts A and B. Most people get Part A, which again is hospital coverage for free. That's because they paid enough in Medicare payroll taxes over the years to qualify for that. Part B, however, carries a monthly premium. The standard Part B premium this year is $135.50. The premiums are income indexed, and you're going to pay more if your adjusted gross income is above $85,000 for an in individual or $170,000 for a married couple. You'll also pay 20% of the Medicare allowed costs for certain Part B services, 
although many preventive health services covered under Part B, uh, such as cancer screenings and flu shots, don't have any out-of-pocket costs. Part B also has an annual deductible, which is $185 this year. Okay. If you buy a Part D drug plan, uh, you'll pay an additional monthly premium for that. Um, this year, the national base premium for Part D plans is $33.19. Part D premiums also are income indexed, so you'll have a higher premium if you have a higher income. And Medigap supplemental insurance policies have monthly premiums, too, if you choose to buy one. So from personal observations, I noticed that an initial billing from Medicare, it would be an estimate, but because of the adjusted gross income from information that comes later to Medicare, there will be an adjustment according to what your adjusted gross income is, and that the billing may not reflect those details. It may require an explanation from a Medicare authority those adjustments that are ongoing. And there's incentives, I've noticed, too, from personal observations, incentives to move on to automatic drafts to that, that bring the cost down for Medicare's billing. Yes, and uh, most people, just so uh, we get it out there, their, their Part B premiums are deducted from their Social Security checks. That's the way most people pay. Right, once they're on it. But before they are on uh, Social Security, which could there could be a, that interval where they're simply paying for Medicare before they start taking their Social Security benefit. Yeah, that's true. I mean, for instance, I just turned 65. I just signed up for um, oh, congratulations. Medicare myself. Yes. Yeah, and, but I'm not eligible for Social Security until I turn 66. Okay. And, Jack, what about the costs for Medicare Advantage? Well, you have to pay the monthly Part B premium, whether you have original Medicare or Medicare Advantage. Uh, that's something to keep in mind. Many Medicare Advantage plans have premiums on top of that, but not all of them do. So how do you find out about Medicare Advantage premiums? Well, there are several ways to do that. You can go to the Medicare.gov website and click on it. There's a green button that says Find Health and Drug Plans and um, you put in your, your zip code, and you'll be able to look at all the Medicare Advantage and Part D drug plans that are available in your area. And you'll see contact information and details about what the plans cover, and you'll also see how much they all cost. So you can do a comparison that way. Um, you'll also see star ratings for all the Medicare Advantage and drug, uh, Part D drug plans. And each plan has from one to five stars. Five stars is the highest rating. We always urge people to buy the plan with the highest star rating that they can find because that's going to be the plan that has the highest uh, ratings for uh, quality of care and customer satisfaction, those sorts of things. Okay. What other sources, Jack, are available to help people start through all these Medicare choices? And there are many. Yes, there are. And, uh, you know, if you have questions, you can always call us directly at Medicare. Uh, we're at 1-800-MEDICARE, and in numbers, that is 1-800-633-4227. And our uh, customer service representatives are available around the clock to answer questions. Uh, another great resource is the Medicare and You Handbook, which is mailed every fall to every Medicare beneficiary in the country. And I think it's a, a really good overview of all the Medicare parts, uh, what they cover, how they work, and it lists uh, the same information about Medicare Advantage and Part D drug plans that I mentioned mm -hmm. earlier. And you can also find that handbook online, by the way. Oh, okay. 
So is there any way to get in-person help? Yes, there's a, a terrific nonprofit uh, organization called the Health Insurance Counseling and Advocacy Program, uh, or HICAP, H-I-C-A-P. And uh, you can find HICAP offices throughout California. There's one in Orange County. And uh, they do personalized counseling to help people get the most out of their Medicare benefits. And the counseling is free. You can walk in or make an appointment over the phone. The counselors are volunteers. They're very well trained, and they're often Medicare beneficiaries themselves, so they know the ropes, they know the issues. Oh, great. And they can help you choose between original Medicare and Medicare Advantage or help you pick a Part D drug plan that covers all your medications at a price that you can afford. Uh, They're not trying to sell you any specific product. Uh, They're not trying to steer you toward any particular company. And so you just get uh, good, unbiased advice from, from HICAP. If you live in California, there's a toll-free number that connects you to the HICAP office that's closest to your home, and that number is 1-800-434-0222. And I have the local number here. It's it's a Santa Ana office, and the number is 714-480-6450. I don't know what that spells out, but... All these numbers will be in the podcast summary for listeners to refer back to. So, Jack, talk a little bit about Medicare's open enrollment season. What is that, and why is it important? Medicare's open enrollment season is a seven-week period uh, when you can uh, sign up for or switch or drop a Medicare Advantage plan or Part D drug plan. And Medicare open enrollment starts every year on October 15th, and ends on December 7th. So I want to know how that works, Jack, as far as the mechanics, that the prompt, it comes from us self-administering uh, that. We have to know in our calendars that we've got to deal with that then, or is there some sort of, uh, some kind of public bulletin that is made available? How, how do people make sure they don't miss that? Well, th- that is something that we work on every year. We do uh, outreach campaigns to remind people of the open enrollment season, and the dates are in the Medicare and You handbook. Uh, they're in on our website. They're in all the educational materials that we send out to folks. Okay. So who's affected by Medicare enrollment? In other words, who needs to pay attention to it? Well, if you have original Medicare, uh, meaning that you can choose any doctor or hospital that accepts Medicare, you don't need to worry about open enrollment. But if you have a Medicare Advantage plan or a Part D drug plan, you may want to check whether there's another plan on the market that's a better fit for you at a lower price. Okay. Uh, if you're already enrolled in a plan and you're happy with it, you don't need to do anything. But uh, Medicare Advantage and Part D drug plans are run by private insurers, and their benefits and costs uh, can change from year to year. For example, a plan can uh, raise its monthly premium, Uh, It can raise the price of a drug that you need. So it really makes good sense to review your coverage every year and make sure that your plan is still a good fit for you in terms of cost and coverage and quality. Uh, We find that people who shop around during open enrollment often wind up with a better deal that uh, saves them money. So I I just want to get back to that knowing when that's coming around. So it's probably a good practice for us as individuals or for uh, to work with our loved ones is to build in that into our sort of personal calendar so we're doing all this checking out so we don't miss any deadlines. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good, it's, it, it's a good uh, date to keep in mind. Okay. It's, again, it's October 15th through December 7th each year. 
So, Jack, if what if you pick a Medicare Advantage plan and decide you don't like it? Well, if you wind up with a plan that you don't like, there's a window in which you can get out of it. Uh, even okay. after an open enrollment ends on December 7th, you can change to a different plan or switch back to original Medicare. And you can do that between January 1st and March 31st of oh. the following year. And if you switch from Medicare Advantage back to original Medicare, you can also buy a Part D drug plan during that period. And any changes you make will be effective the first of the month after the plan gets your request. If you just joined us, my guest is Jack Cheevers, Public Information Officer for Region 9 of the U.S. Center's for Medicare and Medicaid services, and we're talking today about the basics of Medicare enrollment. So, Jack, I understand that Medicare has a new online way for people to track their Medicare claims and download their health records. Yes, it's called MyMedicare.gov. People with original Medicare can create an online account at MyMedicare.gov and uh, use it to check a variety of information about their Medicare coverage. Now, for example, you can see your Medicare claims uh, as soon as they're processed, and you can make sure the information is accurate. Uh, you can manage your prescription drug list and other personal health information, and your MyMedicare.gov account gives you information about all the preventive health services you're entitled to and lets you view information about your Part D deductible uh, and your information at MyMedicare.gov is strictly private, and it's accessible only to you. And can you also print out your health records? Yes, absolutely. You can uh, create uh, what's known as an on-the-go report oh. that allows you to print your health information so you can share it with your doctor or uh, any other health care provider. If you go to the My Medicare page, you'll see a link that says, uh, at the very top, it says, create an on-the-go report. And okay. you can click on that, and you can select the specific information you want to print out in your report. Uh, for instance, you, your report could have uh, basic health information. It could have your uh, medical conditions, any allergies you have, any implantable medical devices you have, your favorite providers, your drugs, wow. and uh, the pharmacies that you use. Um, you could also include your emergency contacts, uh, what preventive services you've had that year, uh, and any health plan-related information uh, that you'd like to be displayed on that report. Jack, is there any way that you know as an administrator in the, in the Medicare system, is, is there any way you know that how often, what's the rate of, of consumers using this Go report? I don't have that information, Claudia. It but I'm not familiar with that, so I'd be just curious, you know, if, yeah. there's, if it's really broadly adopted kind of, um, you know, measure. Well, it's new. It's a, okay. it's a new feature, and we're just trying to, to tell people it's out there. It's very useful. I mean, yes. In the sense that you can keep all your personal health information together, and you can print it out. I mean, if you need to go to a specialist or you change primary care doctors and you want a quick summary of all your records, now you have a way of, of transmitting that to uh, to the doctor. Yeah, that sounds really beneficial. Okay, well, let's back up for a minute to signing up for Medicare. You said earlier that people have this seven-month window around their birth month to sign up. What's the best time during that window to sign up? So to reiterate, the sign-up window begins three months before the month you turn 65, uh, it includes the month you turn 65, and it ends three months after the month you turn 65. And you want to start getting your Part B as soon as you're eligible. 
uh, which is the month that you that you do turn 65. So to do that, you need to sign up during the three months before the month in which you turn 65. And if you wait until the month you turn 65 or the three months after that, your start date for Part B coverage is going to be delayed. Okay. So what if you miss the seven-month window entirely? Well, we hope you don't, but if yeah. you do, uh, you can still sign up for Part A and B between January 1st and March 31st each year. Mm-hmm. But, and this is a big but, uh, your coverage won't begin until July 1st and you also may wind up paying a higher premium because you uh, enrolled late. To July 1st after the March 31st. So that's a window, and that might be critical if somebody's health is, you know, in some kind of, you know, Exactly. That's that's several months where you're going to be forced to go without coverage, and you want to avoid that. Right. Um, But there's, there's an important exception to all this. It's for people who don't sign up for Parts A and B when they're first eligible because they're covered, under a group health plan based on current employment. Okay. Uh, this could be you if, if you or your spouse is still working and you're covered under your own or your spouse's employer or union health plan. In this case, you'd have a special enrollment period. It's eight months long, and it starts the month after your employment ends okay. or your coverage ends, whichever happens first. And I, I need to emphasize that COBRA and retiree health plans are not considered coverage based on current employment you're not eligible for a special enrollment period when that type of coverage ends. So when you're severed and the COBRA is initiated, that the clock starts when you are severed from your employment. Exactly. Okay, well, that's really helpful. And what are the penalties for late enrollment? Well, uh, in most cases, if you don't sign up for Part B when you're first eligible, you'll have to pay a late enrollment penalty, and you'll have to pay this penalty for as long as you have Part B. Your monthly premium for Part B may go up 10% of the standard premium for each full month period that you could have had Part B but didn't sign up for it. So that adds up over time. And also, you may have to wait for the general enrollment period, and again, that's from January 1st to March 31st to enroll in Part B, and your coverage, again, doesn't start until July 1st of that year. So again, there's several months where you're uncovered. And so just keep in mind, the best time to sign up for your Medicare is before the month in which you turn 65 years old. We've got a little bit of time left. Let's, we're going to sort of wrap this with, uh, does everyone need to sign up for Part B? Well, most people should enroll in Part A as soon as they're eligible. Okay. Uh, it's usually free, and it covers important things like hospital stays, skilled nursing, and hospice care. Uh, again, Part B covers doctor fees, outpatient services, medical equipment, and other items. And uh, if you elect Part B, You have to pay the monthly premium for the rest of your life, whether or not you actually use it. If you or your spouse is still working and you have health coverage through an employer or a union, it may be to your advantage to delay Part B enrollment. Uh, So it's a good idea to contact your employer or your union benefits administrator to find out exactly how your coverage is going to work with Medicare. Uh, And this includes people who work for the federal or state government uh, and people on active duty military service. But remember, COBRA and retiree coverage do not count as coverage based on current employment. Well, Jack, this has been a most thorough, it's detailed, so people might want to re-listen to this podcast, break it down into the sections that they're concerned about, and they can get all of the phone numbers that you've given and the websites. So, Jack, so much, it's so good always to work with you. You give us 
public service announcements that are really interesting that we like to play uh, here at KUCI. Thanks for taking the time to be on Ask a Leader today. It's been my pleasure, Claudia. My guest was Jack Cheevers, public information officer. You can well hear him in his conveyance here for Region 9 of the U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Stay tuned. My next guest will be George Shea, playwright, children's author, and environmental activist. And he'll be talking about a lovely play he's written and is producing and presenting all around the country, Dr. Keeling's Curve. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My guest in this segment is George Shea, a playwright, children's author, and environmental activist. His plays have been produced in New York, Edwardsville, Illinois, Williamstown, among other places around the U.S. He's also the author of many children's books, including a biography of Rachel Carson. His writing has been published and broadcast in several mediums, stage, television, and radio, where he was a regular contributor of satiric sketches to National Public Radio's All Things Considered. He has written more than 100 magazine articles, most recently most recently for On Charles David Keeling and the Keeling Curve. Not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. George was arrested outside the White House in 2011 with Bill McKibben and 1,250 other demonstrators protesting the Keystone XL pipeline. George completed his Bachelor's of Arts at Fordham University in English Language and Literature. I first met George at a Citizens Climate Lobby conference where we were all treated to the opportunity to view a film of a performance of George's play, Dr. Keeling's Curve, with Mike Farrell as a scientist with whom George wants the broader public to become more familiar. We'll give it our due today. George Shea comes to us from Studio City. Welcome to Ask a Leader, George. Well, thank you. Thank you, Claudia. So it was in... 1988, as you say, in the broader platforms in the public here, while interviewing novelist Kurt Vonnegut for East-West Network, that you first learned of the existence of human-induced global warming and the seeds of your play, Dr. Keeling's Curve, were sown. George, first tell us about the meaning of that curve that tracks the carbon in the atmosphere. Well, uh, let me say this. What's so different about Dr. Keeling's curve, which tells really the story of the life and work of Dr. Charles David Keeling, who called himself Dave Keeling, it's, it's okay, with, with all due respect to Al Gore and a whole lot of other people, it's not uh, it's a compendium of charts, graphs, statistics, nothing wrong with that, but uh, Dr. Keeling's curve is, comes to, it's a story, it's a true story. And it's very entertaining. And in the course of telling Keeling's story, Mike Farrell basically explains the basics of, of the um, carbon dioxide and why it's so dangerous. Yeah, to, to go back to 1988, I interviewed uh, Kurt Vonnegut that year, and I thought I'd have a great time with Vonnegut, and it was okay. It wasn't great. 
And at the end of it, he started saying, uh, he was chain-smoking all through it, you know. And at the end of it, he said, oh, what's the use of going on about this? The planet's doomed, you know. We're all going to run out of oxygen. It's over. I said, what are you, and I, I hadn't heard anything. I said, what are you talking about? And he was talking about climate change. Uh, you know, he said, I'm like, don't, don't you, know, I, you don't want to print this. I don't want to frighten your readers. <laughs> but he frightened the hell out of me. And uh, I started calling around. I found myself talking to Lester Brown one day, who was the head of uh, World Watch at that time. And uh, he sketched it out, how bad it you know, could be if we let it go. And I said, is there any way to stop it now, head it off at the pass? He said, yeah, yeah, if... Uh, the nations of the world uh, made the kind of all-out effort the Allies made to win World War II, we could still stop it. You know? Now, he was talking about the 1990s, and of course that didn't, it didn't happen, and it hasn't happened since, hasn't happened yet, nearly happened since. But that was my introduction to climate change. So let's step back even a little bit further. When did a man of literary sensibilities like yourself turn to conveying science in your creations? Hmm. Well, I thought about it. I decided to, to do the kind of thing I'm used to doing. And uh, I decided to write a children's book about Keeling. And I interviewed a whole bunch of people who had worked with Keeling and the Keeling family and so on. Uh, and I could not find a publisher who wanted to publish a book about Keeling. Uh, the last one said to me, uh, why would I want to publish this? Nobody ever heard of this guy. And that, that hasn't changed. Uh, most educated Americans have never heard of uh, Charles David Keeling. So I thought to myself, maybe this could be a play, because I'd written plays. Yes. And um, one day I, I was uh, walking around Studio City, and uh, where I live, and... I saw Mike Farrell, and I ran up to him, and I said, uh, Mike, how do you feel about climate change? You know, And he said, oh, it's awful. I said, yeah, yeah. Anyway, we talked for about three minutes. I told him I'd send him some pages. He said, fine, but it can't be a lecture. It's got to be, it's got to have some theatrical value. So we went back and forth for six months, and we came out with a, with a play that, that pretty much Mike has performed ever since. Now, of course, the play has to be constantly updated because an awful lot has happened. Correct. The, the, last the first years. play that you had written, put it, the words down, that, that was filmed, that was in 2014, and, and you're continually revising and, oh, and yeah. bringing yeah, up to yeah, how many parts per million. We're uh, seeing it very soon here, here in, uh, in L.A. But, yeah, that was at Caltech. And, um, yeah, it, that's, that's, that's kind of the basic the basic play, which isn't likely to change. But, of course, the situation changes, and so the last 15 minutes of the play is constantly being revised. That It's in that part. So, right. George, did your connecting with children in the literature you've written, did that organize some kind of obligation to communicate this daunting environmental message to all ages? I don't know. The best guess I can make, Claudia, is that in the course of writing a lot of educational materials for children, I don't have a scientific background, right? Uh, but I did develop an ability to take a complex situation and 
make it simple, make it easy enough to understand. And that's basically Dr. Keeling's curve. Well, it, it, it is so beautifully done. It's such a, a potent means for conveying the science in, in this form of the story, as you said you were talking with Mike Farrell about. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader here on Radio KUCI. My guest is George Shea, playwright and children's book author, talking about his play, Dr. Keeling's Curve, among other marvels of a story of subversive lesson on science like no other. So I'd like for you to, to talk a bit about the role Dr. Keeling's family has had, the collaboration with them. Now they are grown with their own families. How, how did all that work out? Well, my first contact was with Ralph Keeling, who is uh, David Keeling's second-born son. And Ralph uh, decided to follow in his father's footsteps, and he's running the, the CO2 measurement uh, program in Mauna Loa, also at uh, Scripps down in uh, La Jolla. And uh, so I contacted uh, Ralph, and Ralph was, was pretty excited. He said, gee, nobody's ever written anything about my father. And he gave me phone numbers and contact info for a whole bunch of people who had worked with um, David Keeling back in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and so on. And I interviewed every one of them. Dr. Keeling himself, he died in the 2000s? He died in 2005, yeah. Okay. He, was, he, he loved science. Uh, he loved nature. He was crazy about mountains. He was always hiking in mountains. Uh, he had a heart attack as he was uh, hiking in the Bitterroot Mountains in Montana with his son, Eric, and um, that was that. But he sort of went out with his boots on, you right. know what I mean? Right. You know? Well, I, I want to take that moment. We're talking about where he was which is where he was, and we learn about this in your beautiful play, his life's career affirms that you one ought to select a career that doing something you love where you love doing it. Isn't that, that's one of the messages, isn't it? Was that an overt message for you in your play? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Keeling uh, was offered a fellowship to Northwestern, okay, and... What was being taught at uh, Northwestern, if you were in, into chemistry, was polymer chemistry, which is all about plastics. That was all the rage, and still is, you know. Um, and Keeling didn't have much use for it. <laughs> he didn't want to go to work for DuPont or whatever in a stuffy laboratory where he'd be. He wanted to do pure science in nature. That was his dream, always was. And um, he had a meeting with this professor who tried to persuade him. Uh, matter of fact, he had a very nice offer from some major corporation, a nice starting salary, and his professor uh, tried to persuade him. He said, well, why don't you give it a year or two? You know, let's see how you like it. You know, you can, you can always climb uh, the mountains later. It's a nice enough hobby, but Keeling said, no, I want to climb them now. And he walked out of the office. Right? And that was it. Uh, he wound up going, uh, going as a postdoc to, to Caltech where Harrison Brown had created uh, an, an, probably the only program of its kind in the world at that time, uh, geochemistry, the study of the whole Earth and how it works. And Brown was a very uh, dedicated, he was a real visionary guy. He'd, he'd worked right. on the bomb at Los Alamos. He wrote a book called Destruction Be Our Destiny, and so on. So anyway, Keeling gets to Caltech, and he's assigned... Uh, going down into a dingy basement and putting rocks into a giant rock crusher 
like six, eight hours a day, whatever. They were looking to extract uranium from um, granite. Uh, this was the early 50s, uh, and, you know, the, the Cold War was rolling right along. Now, this didn't particularly interest uh, Keeling. You know, he thought to himself, I didn't come all the way to Pasadena to uh, put rocks into a machine. So the next morning, when he was supposed to report for duty at the rock crusher, he stayed upstairs and thought maybe he'd find something more interesting to do. He overheard uh, Harrison Brown, his professor, say to someone, uh, I'd say the amount of CO2 in a freshwater stream would be about the same as in the, the air around the stream. <laughs> and Keeling jumped on it because he wanted to get out of the rock crusher job. Yeah, you know? yeah. And he, he ran into uh, Brown's office and he said, you know, Dr. Brown, I really don't agree with you. Uh, don't you think there'd be more CO2 in, in the, the river, in the, the freshwater stream? And Brown kind of gave him a look as if to say, what are you doing up here, Keeling? Why aren't you downstairs on rock duty, you know? Yeah. But Keeling was a thoughtful guy. Everybody loved him and uh, loved uh, Brown. And Brown said, well, listen, Keeling, you feel so strongly about this. Why don't you go out, and, uh, out into the field and prove it? You know, And that, was, that started it. And, and, uh, and another message also is because as, as we were talking in preparation for this interview, George, we were talking about the constant, the universal tension between applied science versus pure science. And Dr. Keeling's was certainly pure science. And, and I guess that's another model, another message out of your play is a pl the pure science plus persistence has such merit that we, we, ought, we ought not to dismiss pure science at, you know, just... For the sake not at of all. yeah, uh, that not at makes all. the big case for that, right? Yeah, Spencer Weird, uh, who's been our, our science advisor on the play from the beginning, uh, Spencer wrote the discovery of global warming, which uh, I asked him one day. I said, who, "Who would you say was the key person in the history of the discovery?" Keeling couldn't possibly be anybody else. It wouldn't have happened okay. without Keeling. So, in um, your message going out, it's what's important is how. Uh, you're, who you're reaching, and also in preparation for this interview, you've talked about it. it's a marvel of how little people know about him, including some pretty privileged science circles. Talk about your audiences and the responses you get at those various venues, George. All I can say about our audiences is very rarely do, does anyone who uh, denier show up, okay? We've never seriously been challenged by a, a denier. They stay away from the play. You know? Really? The, the, yeah. the story, yeah. nobody's coming, biting the story. They're not coming for the play. No, they're not. Well, oh, okay, wow. we did the show in Arkansas, Arkansas State University. It was in a large concert hall. It was a small turnout. About 300 people showed up. But those 300 people were intensely interested there in whatever go. we had to say. Okay. And the message we got from them and it's a message we've gotten from a lot of audiences, what can we do? So I guess there's a couple of levels operating when one takes in the play. There's the intellectual level and there's an emotional level. Are you consciously working at all those in the storytelling? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. The reason Keeling's work was so important was that, okay, early on, he noticed that all his afternoon readings on CO2, uh, the same number kept coming up, 310 ppm. Parts, p ppm is parts per million. Right. 310 parts per million. So Keeling thought, hmm, this might be significant. 
uh, he loved measuring CO2 in nature, and so he went all over the West, all over California, the state of Washington, up the Olympic Peninsula, top of Mount Whitney in the middle of a snowstorm, the Sonora Desert, everywhere he measured, that number came up, 310 ppm. Wow. So yeah. he decided this was news, and it was. Uh, he gave a lecture uh, at Caltech, big turnout. Uh, he was invited to go to Washington to visit with Wexler, who was running the uh, Weather Bureau. Uh, Wexler offered him a job. Keeling really didn't want to work for the Weather Bureau. Uh, so he, Wexler sent him back to California to meet with Roger Revelle and Hans Seuss. They were, at the time, they were writing a paper on the ability of the ocean to absorb CO2. And uh, they thought that ability had been greatly exaggerated by a great many people. For such a long time, and even now, uh, people have thought of the ocean as you know, the planet's junkyard. Throw whatever you want. You want to get rid of something, throw it in the ocean. They thought the, the amount of CO2 the ocean could uh, absorb was really close to the 50%. Turned out to be even less than 50%. So they were very impressed with Keeling's work. And they engaged, Roger Revelle engaged his services to uh, work on, on the International Geophysical Year, which took place in 1957-58. Now, the 310 number by 1958 was up to 317. By 1963, it was 321.5. By 19, well, okay. Um, in other words, it was constantly going up. It was only going up. in one direction. Exactly. It was yeah. holding steady, and then it started going up. Oh, sure. Now, he, he was always running into government bureaucrats who didn't understand the importance of his work. All right? Okay. And whatever funding he had was pretty much wiped out by the space program. It was very expensive, yeah, sending a, a man to the moon. As we've all had a chance to look at with the 50-year commemoration True. of the lunar yes, landing. very attractive. Right. You know? We could see the, but, the push there, right? Yeah. I mean, I've talked to scientists who feel that uh, it was an interesting stunt, but, I mean, we, we, we might very well have paid more attention to what was going on down here on Earth. Uh, Keeling's program, by the way, was canceled uh, because of the space program. Okay. Well. And in early 1964, there were no measurements of CO2 being taken anywhere on this planet. Keeling got his funding back from the NSF, and he kept going. You know. uh, but that was it. By 1969, it was up to 327. 1975, uh, it was the first time the term global warming appeared in print. It was up to 333.5. On the day of Keeling's passing, in 2005, it stood at 382. And right now, okay, this past June, it hit 415. Yes. Ralph Keeling gave an interview on CNN, and he said we're heading for 350 by, in a, let's see, it'll take by 2034, which as uh, we speak is about 15 years away. Which is what Bill McKibben, with whom you were protesting about the Keystone Pipeline, is that that's the name of the organization. He's trying to organize people around understanding what, what those parts per million really mean to all of us by putting oh, yeah. the, the oh, 350. Yeah. yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah, 350 ppm was about as far as we could go if we wanted to prevent uh, damage to the environment. To the, you know. And now we're 65 points higher. And... Uh, 
It is also, I mean, the play explains about the feedbacks. If you eliminate ice in the Arctic and ice reflects sunlight, if the ice isn't there, then you've got dark oceans which only absorb the sunlight. And that's the reason the Arctic is warming up twice as fast as the rest of the planet. I mean, right now there are wildfires in the, within the Arctic Circle. They're in Sweden. Uh, but one, in other words, it's, some, it's like a house of cards kind of thing. It's like a vicious cycle. When, once one thing starts going wrong, then it sets up other feedbacks and the momentum grows. Accelerates. We could use the word. I, I always uh, t- caution climate scientists from hedging their language instead of saying tragedy. I want them to use the word catastrophe. So instead of grows, you can. I think we can just say it's accelerating. Oh yeah. This trend. Oh yeah. Everybody was just very surprised. Into, yes, exactly. Uh, and shocked when the IPCC came out with a report. This was in October of 2018, saying that um, we cannot afford to go to two degrees centigrade. And I, would, I was talking to scientists three or four years ago who would kind of shrug, and they say, yeah, we'll probably go to two degrees centigrade, like it was no big deal. It's a very big deal. Yeah, we can't go to two degrees centigrade because then you're setting off super storms, super sea level mm-hmm. rise. The whole thing just goes crazy. And already uh, we've got quite a few climate refugees. Eventually we could have hundreds of millions. Well, there are well over a billion people in Asia, Africa, we're going to be wiped out if it if it just takes it really takes off. So it's really interesting. I'm, my listeners can hear in you a real. Uh, you're an artisan, and looking listening to how dedicated you are into really finding out the all that's taking place in the scientific world. And I want you to sort of in closing talk about where your work is taking you. I mean, you're looking for more venues all the time and that you're updating this. So talk about where are you headed with this and are there any kind of calls to action once you present this play? Well, where are we heading? Um, as of now, we're supposed to be, we're going to be doing the show in Sacramento. Um, and Jonathan Parfrey, who is uh, scheduling the show, Sacramento would also like to do it in Washington, D.C., and that's a very tantalizing possibility. We just want to reach as many people as we can get. We did it for the CCL conference, Citizens Climate Lobby. I'm a member of the CCL myself, and we've been working with the Sierra Club. In September of 28, uh, yeah, we... we, uh, had a show. We did the show at the Broad Theater in Santa Monica, and the, and the Sierra Club uh, produced the show. So the, the the connection with the Sierra Club is going to continue. And basically, that's all. The show is really there just simply to educate as many people as we possibly can. I mean, the average person is not going to pick a, read a three hundred page book on the subject of climate change. It's just not going. It's not happening. People don't read a whole lot anyway. And this play takes an hour and 15 minutes to explain the whole deal. It just simplifies it. It's all about CO2, all right? There's right. too much of it in the atmosphere. There's more all the time. It stays up there for hundreds of years. And the longer it's up there and, and growing and growing, you're going to have feedbacks. And you have a situation that's rapidly accelerating. And the worst-case scenario, it, it really could become unstoppable at some point, And we 
we don't know what that point is. George, I have one more suggestion for a, for venue. I'm I'm taking a leaf out of a book I haven't read, but I know about. It's Houston, We Have a Narrative. I know you know about that book. And I'm thinking maybe take this play to performing arts education centers so that artisans right. can see that take take out the message that when they see a science story, that story can be creatively presented for a teachable moment because there's so many science stories out there that need to be told, just uh-huh. like Keeling's Curve does need to be told. Right, right. Just yesterday I was talking to uh, Caltech about the possibility we might do the show out there uh, in probably 2021. Right, but I'm, I mean just in creative circles too in, in art, like the Orange County Museum of Art has very contemporary political forms that they tie into what's being installed at, on an exhibit there. So it's, uh, I'm just wanting you to have an, a, a, a think more broadly about the audiences that can tack on to your message and, uh-huh. and expand it and deepen it. For, so thank you, George, for your time today. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate uh, the time as well. Thank you, Claudia. I really appreciate your interest. My guest was George Shea, playwright and children's book author talking about his play, Dr. Keeling's Curve. Well, that is my wrap. Next week, my guests will be Gerline Joseph, an activist involved in such consequential issues as immigration, socioeconomic and racial justice, domestic violence, and child sexual abuse. She'll be accompanied by Lydia Natolo, who is a Ugandan national naturalized in the U.S., formerly the Associated Student Body President of UCI, and now running for Vice President of the Ugandan Diaspora. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.